Welcome to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. You deserve complete financial advice. There's no acceptable alternative if you want a plan to live well and on your terms. Complete financial advice equals complete peace of mind. Now, let's get into this week's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to Retire Right with Larry Heller from Heller Wealth Management. Today, we're going to be talking about dimensional fund advisors, and Larry has a special guest in studio, and that is Philip Meyer Bronze. Philip is a senior researcher in Dimensional's Austin office, where he conducts empirical asset pricing research. Philip holds a PhD in economics from Free University Berlin in cooperation with Max Planck Society. In addition, he has a BSc in mathematics and economics and an MSc in econometrics and mathematical economics from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Wow, that's that's a mouthful, guys. How are you today? <laughs> I barely made it through that. Yeah, I'm doing terrific, Eric. Doing great, thank you. Wonderful, Philip. Uh, that is a tremendous amount of education. Uh, sounds like you've done a ton of work as well. How how long is your work experience with with this right now? So I joined Dimensional Fund Advisors uh, right after that PhD that you mentioned, and uh, which yeah was in financial economics, and that was about four years ago. Wow, that's fantastic. Larry, thank you so much for bringing them on. I'm going to hand this over to you. We're talking about dimensional fund advisors today, right? Yes. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Philip, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. So uh, a lot of our listeners out there, a lot of people actually that I, that I meet, and when I mentioned dimensional fund advisors, they look at me with a blank stare. They've never heard of dimensional fund advisors and, and especially don't know why they, uh, why they are unique. So I thought We'd have a great podcast today and talk a little bit about, you know, who Dimensional Fund Advisors are, uh, what makes them unique, and how do they work. And uh, Philip is joining us today, and thank you, Philip, for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks, Larry. So why don't we start actually, you know, kind of right at the right at the be- beginning. Um, you know, what is the uh, origin of Dimensional Fund Advisors? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the origin of Dimensional Fund Advisors really lies in this scientific revolution of sorts that we saw in the, right around the middle of the 20th century, so 1950s, 60s, 70s. And it was a scientific revolution as far as our understanding of markets, right? So for the first time, researchers um, had good data available, essentially, on capital markets, good data on stocks and bonds and the returns in particular of stocks and bonds. And a lot of that revolution happened at the University of Chicago. Uh, professors such as Merton Miller, Gene Fama were uh, key figures in, in that revolution. And the two founders of Dimensional, David Booth and Rex Singfield, both studied at the University of Chicago and studied finance there. So we're kind of at the place uh, when it was happening, when that revolution was unfolding. And so I think when Dimensional was set up by these two in 1981, it was sort of a logical applied consequence of that really paradigm shift or, yeah, revolution in our understanding of markets. And I think, you know, one thing you can point out there as far as this paradigm shift is obviously the work of Gene Fama, that earned him a Nobel Prize, uh, but also that was very closely linked to um, us as Dimensional Fund Advisors on the informational content of market prices, right? So market efficiency, this notion that uh, markets do a pretty good job of uh, putting information into prices, and it's very difficult, if not impossible, to reliably outguess market prices, right? So it's a paradigm shift towards working with the market, harnessing the market's power, rather than assuming that it's wrong and rather than working against the market. And when Dimensional Fund Advisors was set up in 1981, it was initially set up as a um, 
pioneer in small cap investing. So the first fund uh, was a small cap fund, still around 38 years later and with a great track record. So I think one great example of the enduring power of the ideas that underpin the firm. Uh, but we've obviously expanded um, a lot from that over the 40 years, close to 40 years that we've been in business. Yes, let's let's talk about that. You know the the academics a little bit, a little bit more. So you know most individuals, you know they're not in the investment world. They don't know how a mutual fund works, and you know they just think they give their money to a, a money manager, and the money manager buys stocks and hopefully outperforms their their index or their or their benchmark. And that's not what dimensional fund advisors is all about. So. You know, you, you mentioned a little bit about academics and pharma French. And uh, so maybe you can explain a little bit more kind of the the thinking in the layman's terms on, you know, how does dimensional differ when they go ahead and, and putting a fund or managing a fund? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do agree with you. It, it is very different to, you know, certainly what most I think of the other uh, you know, money managers out there, broadly speaking, do. And I think for us, it all uh, it all revolves around, yeah, you know, world-class, deep, uh, rigorous research, one, and then the very thoughtful, careful implementation of that research to obviously ultimately serve the client and put together investment solutions that are, you know, as best as they can possibly be. And uh, yeah, you pointed to the research. So I, I pointed to that revolution in our understanding of markets that I you know, pinpointed to the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Obviously, uh, research didn't stop then. So over the years and decades since, uh, financial science has evolved and we've learned more and more about what drives, for example, differences in stock returns. Um, so initially there was this understanding that stock sensitivity to the market uh, drives differences in stock returns. That was a one-factor model typically referred to as the capital asset pricing model. Over time, and uh, you mentioned Fama and French, uh, these two were very instrumental in, in that development. Over time, additional insights were added to this one-factor sort of world. We learned, for example, that small cap stocks uh, tend to have higher returns than large cap stocks. We learned that value stocks, so stocks that trade at low price to book multiples, for example, tend to have higher returns, have higher expected returns than growth stocks. And this, yeah, I think enhanced understanding of, of how markets work and, and what drives returns and differences in returns really continues to this day. And it's very much uh, at home in academia, but it's also very much at home uh, here at Dimensional. So we have a research team of, of which I'm a part here at Dimensional of about 100 people uh, basically working on questions like this. So what drives returns? Uh, what can we learn about markets? And then importantly, that second step, right? We're not just academics. Well, what can we do about these insights for the client? So how can we apply financial science? And I think ultimately that's what Dimensional is all about, right? So we're not a university. We're not doing research sort of as a sake in itself. Uh, we do it to, to serve our clients, to improve what we have to offer and then hopefully contribute to, uh, you know, better investment outcomes, which, you know, hopefully mean better lives for many of our clients. Uh, you know, see, so you mentioned, you know, one factor, you know, and, you know, Gene Fama, they always talk about the, the three factor factor model. Can you explain to our listening audience a little bit more about the three factor model? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's a really useful model. So it's really close to home. Thanks for the question as a, as a pricing researcher here. Um, but yeah, so it's a very uh, widely used model that is very helpful and helps explain a lot of what's happening uh, with stock returns. So um, it's a model that has three factors and that together help explain about 90% of the variation in stock returns. So 90% of the movement in stock returns. And it all started with the first of the three factors, the market factor, as a one-factor model. That's what I was uh, kind of talking about a little bit 
earlier, the capital asset pricing model. So this idea that a stock's return depends on how sensitive its move, its returns are to uh, market moves, and in particular, sometimes called beta uh, for those that I've looked into this a little bit. So in particular, this notion that if you carry a lot of market risk, um, you tend to have a higher expected return. If you don't carry a lot of market risk, which is non-diversifiable, so it's risk you should care about, um, you don't have a high return. And then the second and third factors that complete the three-factor model are to do with uh, company size as measured by the market value, the market capitalization of a company, and uh, value. So in particular, the price to book, so the relative valuation of a stock compared to its fundamental uh, value as expressed by the book value, for example. And uh, these two factors were added by, by Fama and French in a really uh, famous and seminal paper they put out in the early 1990s, 1993, uh, which is one of the most cited uh, famous papers in finance. And uh, that sort of brought up the explanatory power from, from around 70% or so, depending on where you look with the one-factor model, to 90% of uh, explained variation, uh, which is a tremendous success in scientific terms, right? So you have a very simple model, just three factors uh, can explain almost all the variation in stock returns. So across thousands of different stocks that we observe in the marketplace. So again, really, um, you know, a bit of a scientific quantum leap there that uh, came out of the work of Fama and French and um, aspects of which we've implemented, of course. So we have uh, funds that you know, target size premiums, value premiums, for example, in addition to obviously the equity premium that you target if you are an equity investor. So it's a yeah, very widely used model that, um, you know, to this day, I think, uh, um, sees a great, you know, great amount of application in financial science. Yeah. So, you know, about probably now it's about 15 years that I've been working with dimensional fund advisors. And, you know, when I came across his, his paper, you know, I'm an, I'm an accountant by, by trade, and, you know, I, I love looking at, you know, expected returns and scientific approach and, you know, was turned off a little bit by some of these, you know, so-called uh, money managers and how they go about determining, you know, how to in invest and, and their performance over longer periods of time compared to, uh, to, to indexes. So when I started looking at, at the models and the academics, the uh, light bulb went off and I said, this is, you know, really where I should have my clients in, in invested in this, you know, this type of, uh, this type of market and this type of strategies. And, you know, Dimensional has, has grown. I don't know, you know, do you know where, Philip, uh, how big Dimensional Fund, Dimensional Fund Advisors is compared to other mutual fund companies these days? Yeah, sure. I mean, we are a large asset manager, not the largest, but a large, a large asset manager. Um, like I've mentioned, we've been around for a while, so we've been at it for close to 40 years. We've experienced a lot of growth over those 40 years and continue to see a lot of growth, which is great. Um, we manage just under $600 billion um, in assets under management, um, which puts us uh, eighth uh, in the recent Morningstar ranking of uh, mutual fund families in the U.S., so the eighth largest. Um, we have about 1,400 employees in 13 offices globally. So it's increasingly a global firm as well, which uh, you know we're certainly very excited about, and I hope our global clients are very excited about as well. Yeah, I mean, 600 billion assets under management, and I'm still amazed about how many people are unaware of dimensional fund advisors. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but I want to kind of go back, and you started to talk about you know, some of the other, you know, the, the, the premiums and the expected returns. Um, why don't we just speak a little bit about those a little bit more, you know, company size, relative price, prof, you know, profitability and, 
you know, why they're so, you know, why they're so, so important and how does dimensional funds use them? Yeah, absolutely. And it ties back to this ongoing unfolding deepening of the understanding of how markets work and what drives returns, right? So the last chapter we sometimes say of financial science is never quite written and we contribute to uh, uh, that evolving frontier. Academics continue to contribute to that evolving frontier. Over the number, uh, over the years and decades that, uh, you know, we've conducted empirical asset pricing research, a number of variables or, you know, characteristics of a stock in a company have really come out and emerged as being very clearly tied to reliable, systematic differences in expected stock return. And you've mentioned some of the ones, uh, company size, uh, relative price, so value. Those were the two um, that were in the three-factor model. Can you, explain, can you explain one of those to our audience? Just pick one of those and explain, what, you know, what do you, how does a premium work and what do, you, what do you mean by that, let's say, on relative price? Yeah, absolutely. I can do that. So in general, I think it's good to have a framework for how to how to think about, you know, what, what could and couldn't be a good idea, basically, right? So in terms of these factors. Um, and it's a three-part framework where we say, well, it needs to make theoretical sense. And I'll explain it maybe using the example of value or relative price. But it needs to make theoretical sense, right? We should expect the thing. So we're not falling uh, prey here to, you know, a spurious finding in the historical data or something like that. Uh, second, we need to have robust empirical evidence that what theory predicts uh, about a premium or return difference was actually borne out in historical data in the most robust way possible. And then third, and that's again key with a view to, okay, let's do something about these findings, this research in the real world. Uh, how about implementability, right? So not everything that sounds great in theory and looks great in the data is also necessarily a great idea in the real world. And uh, I could probably give you a lot of examples uh, for that particular um, scenario. But um, the ones that we pursue, the premiums that we pursue, size, value, and profitability, you know, really pass all of these tests with flying colors. Maybe I can give you the example of relative price or value. Um, so the relative price or value is this phenomenon that low price to book stocks, so stocks that carry a relatively low valuation when comparing the market price of the stock to the book value, you know, what's on the books, um, those stocks tend to outperform, tend to have higher expected returns than growth stocks, which is the opposite, stocks that trade at a high price to book ratio. And so let's walk through this theory, data, and implementability, and we'll come out, you know, basically with the conclusion, and we've put this into practice for, for many, many years, uh, that this is something you should, you know, seriously consider pursuing in the marketplace. So theory says that, um, basically very simple valuation theory says that expected return depends on two things, the price you pay and what you expect to receive in return for paying that price, right? like anywhere in life. I mean, the return on something depends on what you pay and what you get. So that tells you right there that there's basically one of two ways you can get a higher expected return on an investment on a stock. Either you pay less for a given set of future cash flows, a given set of what you receive, or for what you're paying, you're getting more, right? So these are the two basically theoretical gateways into a higher expected return. And value or relative price is all about paying less, right? So all else equal for a given company, a given set of future cash flows, if I'm paying less for that set of future cash flows, the low price to book stock, the value stock, well, mechanically, I have to have a higher expected return, right? I have to have a higher expected return. So it makes sense from a theory perspective. The data is incredibly robust. Um, we see value premiums pretty much wherever we look. So decades of, da decades of data on this uh, from all over the world, you know, 40 different countries and more uh, than that, uh, showing robust value premiums everywhere. So that's good, empirically speaking. And then implementability as well, right? So value is eminently 
implementable. So we've been implementing that uh, since the early 90s. I think also an interesting fact about our funds, oftentimes they launched right around uh, the publication of the initial academic findings. So kind of testimony to how in tune we are with the academic community. So I mentioned the Pharma French papers on size and value 1992-93. Well, our value funds did launch in 1993. And so for that reason, have been around for uh, more than two decades. And it's uh, worked out great, right? So the value premium is something that you can capture in practice, as well as motivate theoretically and see in the empirical data. So that's kind of a, you know, a high level rundown of, of how we think about uh, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff, identifying variables or signals or properties of companies that are worthwhile uh, using and um, you know, throw out those that are not worthwhile using. No, that, that's, that, that's great, Philip. You know, but, you know, for our listeners out there who, who kind of look at the investment side as a black box, hearing some of the things that go on on the research behind the scenes at Dimensional, I hope helps them understand why, you know, why we want to use Dimensional funds and what makes them, you know, very, you know, very unique. You know, a lot of times uh, people do hear about Dimensionals and they mention to me, well, they, you know, they're a index fund and, you know, try to explain to them, well, are they an active manager? Are they a passive manager? You know, so how is Dimensional's investment philosophy different from you know, active and passive managers? Yeah, I think there are a couple of key differences that I would say immediately come to mind. And we do have some similarities as well, some commonalities with some index funds, I should say. So I see where I think people might be coming from on this, and perhaps we can delve into that a little bit more deeply uh, later on. But I think in terms of the investment philosophy, I would say, um, and maybe we can tackle this sort of traditional active mindset or philosophy first, very different from what we do, right? So initially we discussed that we basically take market prices as fair. They are an input to what we do. We we know they are incredibly difficult to reliably outguess. Uh, the market has enormous market uh, you know, information aggregation power. And in general, it's you, know, you tend to be a lot better off by sort of harnessing that power rather than trying to work against the market, rather than trying to outguess market prices, which is, of course, the very, uh, the very principle at heart of a traditional active approach, right? If I'm a stock picker, let's say, um, I'm trying to identify mispriced stocks based on my analysis, and then I'm trying to trade on those uh, you know, perceived mispricings and try to sort of outguess the market. So here my assumption as a traditional active, let's say stock picker, they're not all the same. I'm just speaking in general terms here. But in general, the approach is I try to identify mispriced stocks or securities more broadly, and then I try to you know, exploit those mispricings before anybody else does. And that's obviously, it's almost diametrically opposed to our approach, right, where we say, well, there may or may not be individual cases of mispricing, but I think the research overwhelmingly shows that uh, you know, it's virtually impossible to reliably benefit from those mispricing. So you're almost always better off working with the market than working against it. So very key difference right from the get-go there. I could talk about a lot of implementation differences, some of which are implied by these philosophical differences. And maybe we can go there later. I would say for the index fund, um, and again, there's no one index fund, right? So uh, there's quite a variety there. But I think in general terms, uh, again, a pretty big difference in philosophy, right? So I would say for many index managers, there isn't much of a philosophy to begin with, right? Because they outsource their investment decisions to whoever puts together the index, uh, S&P, MSCI, uh, Russell, whoever it may be. So the manager doesn't necessarily have a, a philosophy. But even at the index level, I think uh, the index, inherent in the indexing principle is a very 
infrequent and incomplete usage of market prices, right? So consider, Larry, what we just said about the power of market prices, right? If market prices reflect available information and useful information in real time, right? They're really quickly updated and up to speed on the latest information there is out in the marketplace. That means you want to be using market prices, you know, second to second, minute to minute, every single day, right? You don't want to be using market prices just once a year, whenever rebalancing day is, or once a quarter, right? It's a very infrequent, incomplete usage that index funds have of this uh, pricing power of the market. And that leads to some uh, very clear disadvantages associated with index funds that uh, we don't have because we don't have those constraints of having to replicate an index and having to rebalance infrequently once a year, once a quarter, every six months, whatever it may be. But at the same time, are still in a position to achieve the same benefits that are associated and I think often rightly associated with index funds, like being well diversified, being low cost, transparent and rules based investment solutions, which are great things. So I think that's what I mentioned with the commonalities. I think we do share the view that these are good things about an investment solution. Uh, but I would point out that in order to get there, so in order to be well diversified, low cost, transparent, rules based and all of that, uh, there's no need to replicate an index and reverse the the reverse insight is that, well, if you do replicate an index, you tend to get these benefits, but you can have them another way. But you also tend to get a lot of disadvantages associated with that sort of, you know, investing equivalent of a straitjacket, if you will, of having to replicate an index and outsourcing that investment decision to the index provider. So, so it's fair. It's fair to say, obviously, Dimensional is not not index funds, but they're they're active managers using, you know, low cost, using, you know, evidence-based theory, using these academic strategies to get an advantage on selecting stocks that will outperform over the long period of time? Yeah, I think it depends a little bit on your definition of active and passive, and I don't think there's an ambiguously, universally agreed upon definition there, right? So, um, you know, if you define passive as only and purely index-based, you know, we're not. If you define uh, active as, you know, stock picking, market timing, trying to outguess market prices, clearly we're not that either, right? So I think of us as sort of taking the best of both worlds, right? So some of the things you mentioned around index funds typically, and that's an important caveat these days, there are thousands of different index funds and, you know, new ones launched every day. So it's not all the S&P anymore, uh, like it perhaps was in the 1990s. But typically, you know, well diversified, low cost, um, very easy to, to understand and monitor, rules based, all of that certainly applies to us. So I think in that sense, um, you know, we certainly are not passive in the pure indexing sense, but I think you can perceive of us as a very systematic, you know, price taker in markets, not one trying to outguess market prices. On the other hand, if you think about the goal of a traditional active manager, right, that's to outperform benchmarks, outperform the market. And as you pointed out, we use science to have that uh, same goal uh, become reality. So pursuing size, value, profitability premiums, for example, in addition to many, many other things that we do. Uh, the goal there is, yes, to increase expected return and increase it above and beyond what you could achieve with an index-based, um, you know, pure market replicating type approach. Yeah, I mean, that was greatly said, and hopefully our audience understands and can appreciate the, appreciate the differences in some of the, some of the wording. You mentioned some of the, you know, the trading advantages over, you know, index. Can you want to expand on some of the other kind of a trading um, strategies that Dimensional um, uses? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, here, the, the contrast or the comparison to an index-based approach hopefully makes that very clear. And it's very intuitive that you don't want to be trading like an index manager trades, right? So, you know, simply put, what gets you good prices in the marketplace, right? Good prices in the marketplace are being had if you are a flexible trader, 
right? If you come to the market having very specific requirements of that market, so you want a very specific thing uh, in very specific quantities at a very specific time, and that's what you want, uh, you're going to get it, yeah, more likely than not, but you're going to pay for that specificity, right? You know, it's like anywhere in life. If you're trying to buy a car and you come to the lot and you say, well, I want this exact make and this exact color, these exact extras, those exact tires. And by the way, I need it right now. I need to drive it off the lot. You know, if you're lucky, you get what you want, but you're probably not going to have a lot of bargaining power as far as the price, right? The index manager is in that exact predicament that I just uh, outlined. Why? Because whenever the index provider drops a stock or adds a stock, so think about the S&P 500, for example, applies to any index, but let's say the S&P. If a group, if a stock leaves that group of 500 stocks, roughly, everybody who's tracking that index has to sell that exact stock, right? Because it's no longer in the index and I'm trying to track and replicate the index. So I can no longer own this stock and you need to sell it in the exact, you know, proportions and quantities that you that the index does, and you need to do it at the exact time everybody else does it who's tracking that index, right? So that, and the same is true for an additional purchase uh, by an index. So you buy and sell together with everybody else in the same name and the same quantity as everybody else. So that's a recipe for bad prices, you know, loosely speaking. And we have a very contrary approach to that. So we are very well diversified. We pursue sort of long-term drivers of expected returns, multi-year phenomena with a great deal of flexibility. So we go to market with a lot more bargaining power. And it's very much borne out in the trading data that perhaps we don't have the time to talk about here today, but in the types of prices we pay. Right? So we come to the market and say, well, a typical portfolio that we run owns hundreds, maybe thousands, sometimes more than 10,000 different securities. So that means if on a single day, a particular security or stock, and same applies to bonds, uh, can't be traded at good prices because things like an index constitution are going on, well, then well, we tend to hold off on that type of trade. And that type of flexibility has enabled us to really bring down the cost associated with trading uh, quite a bit more than an index manager could have. And also, by the way, maybe one aside here, also quite a bit more than a traditional active approach could have, right? Because if you recall what we said about the goal or the approach of a traditional active manager, well, I have to identify mispriced securities and I have to be quick in acting on that perceived mispricing, right? So it's a very specific name. I can't just take a close substitute in terms of characteristic. It's a very specific mispricing that I identified. And I have to act fast, right? I have to basically buy or sell before the market wakes up to the mispricing. And uh, that's, again, very different, right? You go to market with urgency and without flexibility, and you tend to not get good prices. So uh, very different from what we do. And I think the data overwhelmingly shows um, to the benefit of our clients uh, that's been working very well. Mm, absolutely. And we've talked a, a lot about what the main, what makes dimensional, di you know, different and, and, and unique. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about making what makes dimensional unique in the, in the industry? Yeah, sure. We've uh, indeed touched on a few of those things that I would say there. So a couple of things that immediately come to mind are, of course, this sort of enduring belief in the power of markets. We've discussed this a lot, so maybe I don't have to expand on it here anymore, but it's certainly a difference to almost everybody I can think of in the industry. Unwavering commitment to applying financial science and conducting financial science. We talked about that right at the outset. That's very much alive today. Again, we have a research team of 100 people. We work very closely with some of the leading financial economists in the world. Again, I think I'd be hard pressed to think of anybody else in the industry having that kind of a commitment to research. I would add two more things that we haven't talked much about perhaps is one, just a commitment to clients, right? I think everything we do is motivated by trying to serve people, trying to realize better investment outcomes for people, for our clients. 
And we see that with this consistent philosophy and the science-based approach, uh, we forged great relationships over the close to 40 years that we've uh, been in business. And there's a great sense of philosophical alignment. And I, I see that. I talk to clients quite a bit and as part of my research role. I see that in many of the client meetings and it leads to uh, great outcomes just for the client uh, overall. Some examples of that, for example, if you look at the financial crisis and the immediate aftermath, 2008 to 2012, where um, a lot of people were selling out of their equity funds because they were probably afraid, right, based on what the market had done to them over those years. So we saw close to half a trillion in outflows for the U.S. mutual fund industry, for equity mutual funds in the U.S. We had inflows every single quarter, right? I think it's testimony to uh, a common shared view on how markets work and a shared view that unless, unless you absolutely must, those are probably bad times to be selling out of equities, right? Because uh, this long-term disciplined approach is what tends to get you to, you know, reaping some of the returns that the market offers. But if you trade in and out of things and chase performance and try to time the market, you tend to sort of systematically, you know, buy high, sell low, which is, of course, the opposite of what you want to do. And we see that uh, through this very deep working relationship we have with many of our clients, you know, that just didn't happen, at least in aggregate didn't happen. And then finally, I would say uh, our track record. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, usually I think a little bit humble about that as researchers, but nevertheless, I mean, I think a firm based on financial science and taking this systematic market-based approach, having been around for 40 years and with great success, I'd be hard-pressed to find anybody else in the business who can point to that kind of a track record. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, factor or smart beta so-called strategies around these days, trying to replicate perhaps elements of what we're doing. But in terms of the expertise and the just accumulative insight that we've um, gathered over those 40, uh, close to 40 years, uh, I think we're pretty unparalleled there. And it shows also in the performance of our funds. So if you look at over the last 20 years, just one number, for example, you know, 85% of our funds, both equity and fixed income, outperformed their benchmarks versus for the industry, that number is 17%. So one seven versus 85. And again, I think it's uh, um, easily understood why that's the case, right? It's not because we have the magic touch. Uh, it's not because we are the ones who can time and stock select and do all of these things. It's because from the ground up, we think about how can we apply science to build better investment solutions and then be really thoughtful and careful in how we implement these investment solutions. And going back to the earlier point, uh, pair that up with clients that also appreciate and understand and share um, this type of approach to investing. Yeah, I'm going to add one more. And, and, and that's, you know, you know, Dimension Only works with approved you know, investment advisors who also share in the philosophy of dimensional. And we had to go through a process to get approved. So therefore, we're not bringing in clients who are going to pull out at inopportune times and affect some of the uh, some, some of the inflows and outflows. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a, a key point. You're absolutely right. I think uh, it's been a very successful model for our clients. It's been a very successful model for us as well. So that's been great. You know, we believe uh, the advisor has a crucial role in achieving a good investment experience for the client. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And that's why we like to work with advisors. The advisor knows the client much better than we do the ultimate end client investing the money, right? Their financial and life situation, their risk tolerance, their sort of future plans and hopes and goals, and what all of that may imply for asset allocation, for example, right? Uh, the advisor serves as a, you know, couch, counselor and coach of sorts, uh, exactly as you pointed out, you know, to make sure 
clients remain calm in times of market volatility, in times of heightened anxiety, and don't sell out at the bottom and buy back in when uh, euphoria is riding high and, and prices are high. And that leads to the types of results that um, that I alluded to, for example, away to 2012. And yes, it's true as far as the approval. We do have a process in place that requires approval preceding the access to our funds. And again, I think that's been a very successful um model for everybody involved. It ensures a basic degree of mutual of mutual understanding on, on how markets work, on how best to invest. Doesn't mean we agree on everything, of course, right? But means that in general, we tend to agree on, you know, what's good and what's not so good to do in capital markets. And of course, that again, ties back to the science. So trying to stay away from performance chasing, market timing, stock picking, this general approach of trying to outguess market prices. It's just important that you, before I think, start working together, have a general at least agreement on, on some of these tenets. Oh, well, absolutely. Totally agree. Philip, I'm going to wrap up here. I want, you know, I want to thank you today. I think, uh, you know, our audience has learned a lot about dimensional fund advisors. You know, if they have any other questions on anything they heard today, they can uh, reach out to me, be glad to answer any of the other questions, but this is, uh, this is terrific. And I appreciate all your time, Philip. Great. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Philip and Larry, this, this was fantastic. I did learn a ton and holy cow. I know that you could probably uh, bring Philip on for a few more podcasts with all the information he has just in that brain of his, because <laughs> this was, this was fantastic. Larry, again, thank you so much for bringing him on as a guest. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Eric. And thanks again, Philip. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to the Retire Right podcast with Larry Heller. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Larry comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening to today. For everyone at Heller Wealth Management, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time.